Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. As a reminder, we're doing the feedback segment a little bit differently the past few episodes. As you send your feedback in, it gets categorized, and then we structure the show content based around what you're asking. Our first email comes in from Zach tonight, and he says, Hi, Noah. I love the show and what you and everyone else does. It's truly helpful. Uh, Thank you. I noticed the other week you said something about using NVIDIA shields throughout your house for your streaming needs. I've moved to a shield, and I don't regret it at all. My problem is... It seems the shield is hard-coded to ping Google for DNS. I've set a static IP, I've changed my DNS, I use a pie hole in my house, and I've tried with my VPN, but I can't get it to ping my DNS instead of Google's. I've read that some people have set the Google DNS in their routers to basically be a black hole, and it'll make itself up using their DNS or the DNS of their choice. My problem is that I can't do that with my router. Is there a way that I can make the shield use my DNS pie hole without having to buy new hardware? Maybe some sort of software solution that I haven't stumbled onto yet or something that could be done in the pie itself to make this happen. Thanks for your time and keep up the amazing work, Zach. So uh, I, I could actually think of a number of different ways you could, you could crack this nut. So uh, let's start with this. The, uh, the uh, first, before you do anything else, make absolutely sure that you can't do this inside of your router because there was a time if you, five years ago, seven years ago, I would have said that a lot of home or consumer grade routers didn't support the kind of features that you would need to do this. But that's not the case anymore. These days, even the home, we set up an Asus router. Uh, at, at, at a house and the technician that set it up called me back in and said, Hey, the, the router that they bought, they have the identical open VPN wizard that is built into PFSense. And so this is actually a really great client way, uh, to connect into a remote VPN. And that's from an Asus router purchased, you know, a big box store, right? Um, so my first step would be make sure that you can't do this. How you'll know that you can do this or can't do this, you'll log into your router and you're going to look for a couple of things. Essentially what you're looking to do is set your router up to to hand out a specific DNS address or be a specific DNS address, right? So in PFSense, that would look something like this. I'd go up and I would add a virtual alias and I would add the IP alias of 8.8.8.8. And, uh, and well, I have to think that through all the way. But make sure that your router doesn't support that functionality. Then if it doesn't, here are some other options that you can go with. So the first thing is, and this is the way that I... I I treat my system is for the most part, I don't really care what the shield is looking up. It's on its own. uh, It's on its own VLAN. And that VLAN only has access. It has access to two things, the internet and the file server. That's the only part of my network that it can get to because it's the only part of my network. It needs to get to now. Your case may be different, particularly if you're using IP remotes, certain things like that. But if you were looking for a way said, Hey, you've looked into it. My router doesn't support it. What can I do? 
Um, the other th- the other way that you can go about doing that is you can set you could download a copy of PFSense, run it inside of a VM, and make that your DNS forwarder, and then point the either point the shield to that. Although, and this was kind of where I was getting lost in a circle in my head, is if the shield is is hard coded for a particular IP address. You can put that IP address on your network, and if it caches it in ARP on the switch, it's going to talk to that device before it tries to forward it to its gateway of last resort, that is your modem or your internet connection. However, I have to think about how that would work as far as subnetting all of that, um, because if the IP address that is the DNS server isn't in the subnet, then it is going to forward out to the gateway of last resort. It's going to leave anyway. But uh, it, it could be done inside of a router. The answer is, though, you're going to want to use software that has those features available. And so you could use something like OpenSense. You could use something like PFSense. Just because you run PFSense on your network doesn't, it doesn't have to be the router. Uh, it just has to be, uh, it just has to be the thing that the shields are referencing for their DNS requests and then forwarding it on, um, you know, like to, for example, to the pie hole. The, the reason that it's advantageous to do it in the router, if it's your router, is because you can create rules like, hey, any traffic destined for 8.8.8.8, just route it here or send it here. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Because it's the gateway of last resort, you can make those kind of, uh, kind of decisions. I'm not sure that that's going to work if you're using it as an auxiliary, but that's, that's the route that I would go. Our second email comes in from Dennis. Dennis writes in and says, Noah, I'm moving to a new home and there's no cell service there. The ISP provides unlimited phone service for $54.49 per month. And I'm on a budget and always looking for good tech solutions to save some money. What would you recommend to set up phone over the internet at an affordable price? Well, Dennis, the, the good news is there's never been a better time to set up your phone over the internet because it's become incredibly easy and it's become incredibly inexpensive. So the first thing that you're going to need is a trunk provider. And a trunk provider essentially takes and interfaces to the plain old telephone system, also known as POTS, and converts that into IP packets that can then be delivered to your phone system, which you can either set up or you can have somebody else manage. So trunk providers uh, that are out there, um, I use Voxtelesis for all of our stuff. That's what we use at Speed. That's what we recommend to clients. That's what we recommend to the show. I believe there's still a promo code. If you go to voxtelsis.com slash asknoah, and they'll get you started with a, with a discount. What they, they There's a couple of different ways that Voxtelsis can operate. So if you're just using them as a trunk provider, which they're more than happy to do, they will give you a user ID, they will give you a password, and then you buy a phone number from them. So a phone number might cost, you know, two bucks a month, and then it might be a penny per minute or something like that. Again, there's a discount. They waive the setup fees, all that stuff. If you go to their site and use, or tell them that you heard it on AskNoah, I'm sure they'll help you out. Um, but... That will get you a trunk alone. Now, Vox Telesis is a full end-to-end solution provider. So what we what we, we have them do for Speed technologies, because I like phones. I like playing with phones. It's not our it's not our expertise, right? We primarily deal with network and IT. And so those guys, they're a completely Linux-based company and they do everything with phones. Um so we just tell them, hey, we don't want to manage our phones per se. We just want to have them work. Although we're a little persnickety in that we want access to the admin council because when I want to create an extension or change a voicemail password or all that stuff, don't really want to go through somebody. I just want to log into the web UI and do it. Uh, Vox Telesis says, hey, you're a nerd. We're nerds. You want to do that? That's cool. Here's access, full access to your system, full access to the server. Here you go. Uh, and then you manage it. When you get into trouble, let us know. You get in over your head. We'll help you. That's what I prefer to do. And that costs, I think we pay like 30 bucks a month for that. 
Um, so significantly cheaper than your ISP. Now, that's a fully managed system. The other side of that, if you want to play with it on your own, and Voxtelesis will absolutely help you do this, um, you can go download a copy of 3CX, which is the software that they use. Not open source, but very good. Uh, and they install, you install it on a, download the ISO, install it on a server. You can use something like um, Vulture. Uh, allows you to custom upload ISOs. There's a couple other ones out there that you can do that. Uh, and let 3, 3CX install. They also have instructions on converting like a Debian box to a 3CX instance. And from there on, you log into the web UI. You'll go into your trunk configuration and add the Vox Telesis trunk. That will allow 3CX to talk out to the rest of the world and the rest of the phone systems. Um, and then you simply add extensions to your 3CX system and provision phones. Now, Vox Telesis likes 3CX because they, it allows them to provision phones. So, for example, you can create 50 extensions and just start plugging phones in. And because of the way that Yaylink and 3CX work together, um, the MAC addresses for those phones are added to the 3CX system. 3CX then hosts some sort of a proxy system that when it detects that MAC, when that MAC address comes online, it says, hey, who should I provision to? It can be handed off to your 3CX server, and 3CX says, here are all your details. And that does a lot of things, right? Because it not only provisions the phone so that you can make and receive calls, it also does things like update the phone book, update the little keypad on the on the phone itself. You can update the logo if you're a business. It, allow, it automatically will change the password to a randomly uh, generated password within 3CX, so all of the security stuff is taken care of. And so it's, it's really, it is, it's an end-to-end -end solution. Now, if you're sitting there and going, no, you went on the air in 2017 and said that you're only going to use Linux and you're a big proponent of open source. What? Isn't there a better way? Uh, no, there's not. I've tried them all. Um, I just haven't found something that works as well as 3CX does, at least for business when it's when it's critical. The second something comes out, I'll use it. That's not to say that you can't do it another way, though. Uh, Asterix Now, uh, also known as uh, also uh, free PBX, are the open source equivalent of 3CX. And so essentially, Asterix is a massive project that has been used and really is the underpinning of most PBX systems. Uh, on top of that, they've built a web UI called FreePBX. And Asterix now is a distro that um, contains both the Asterix underpinning and the FreePBX web UI on top. And so you can install that and essentially, you're back to the same place you were with 3CX. Actually, to be honest with you, you're probably a few steps ahead because they're from my experience, a lot more features in FreePBX than there are in uh, 3CX. Why do I prefer 3CX or why do we continue to use it? Well, when it comes to things like a mobile app where you can just go to the iTunes or Google Play Store, download the mobile app, sign in with your account. Uh, again, you're you're authenticating into your server, right? So that it's not, it's self-hosted. We own all of our data. We trust Voxtelesis with the data because it's their server. Um I'm not relying on some third-party thing to make that happen. Uh, that's all being done or hosted by companies I choose to work with. Um, but what it does is it creates a tunnel so that it doesn't. I don't have to worry about what AT&T is trying to drop SIP packets or this carrier doesn't allow that or I'm, I'm, I'm at a restaurant and the restaurant has everything but port 80. That kind of stuff popped up all the time when we were using Asterix. Now, not to mention the fact that we had to go find SIP clients to use in our phone. And we tried Zoiper and we, we tried them all. It just didn't work very well. And so maybe someday they'll get better. Um, but if you're looking to do something entirely at your house, free PBX is what runs at my house. 
Uh, and I have Cisco uh, SPA phones, and I have them all tied to the FreePBX system. We use it as an intercom. We use it as our phone system at our house. It works great. At work, we use 3CX. It works great. So it all kind of depends on what you're looking for. But if I were replacing, you know, the phones inside of my house are really just there for the intercom value so that we can call from one uh, room to the other and say, hey, this is, you know, can you come down here? Can you do this? If I was looking to entirely replace my phone system, I was going to live on it, potentially have to dial 911 on it. I would uh, I would make sure that both the server and the client um, are very robust, and that, that's kind of where I wind up with 3CX. But if you have another option, email me, live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to hear it. Uh, callers, always go to the front of the line, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. George is with us. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, no, it's good to talk to you again. Same. Hey, I had a couple of questions tonight, if you have time. Um, one... My daughter is graduating high school this uh, spring, and I want to make her like a, a, a slideshow. And so I was wondering what the best application to use for that would be. So there's a couple different ways you can do that, George. The 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 um the most the most bang for your buck, the most uh, um, pizzazz that you'll get is to use something like Caden Live. Uh, which is really not a slideshow program. It's really a video, non, non-linear video editing program, but it will do a couple of things for you. First of all, um, for if you want to use video clips or if you want to integrate those in, it allows you to do so. But the other side of that is even if you don't, you can use things um, like the Ken Burns effect. So, for example, instead of just rotating between pictures, you can have uh, Caden Live do s- such a thing where you have the picture, and if you've ever seen this in documentaries, they'll zoom into the, they'll either zoom into the picture or they'll zoom out of the picture or they'll pan across the picture or they'll go up or down. Um, this was used by a famous documentarian uh, named Ken Burns, and it's been dubbed the Ken Burns effect, and it creates this motion live feeling of still images, and so it's going to bring a lot more pizzazz uh, to your daughter's presentation. If you want just a, hey, I'm looking for a way to get pictures uh, to, to rotate through and I just, just need it to be done, uh, Libra Impress is a great way to do that. It, it, it'll create a blank slide deck, you, one picture per slide, and you can set it to repeat and then put it in full screen and it, it'll take care of you. Uh, kind of off the wall way to do it, but I've done it the last few times, particularly with um, presentations I had to throw together on the fly. Cody MD now... Um, there's a new name for Hedge, HedgeDoc, uh, is, allows you to actually have a slideshow mode. And so you could embed the images there and then do it. That's a little bit more hackery. But um, but it's kind of nice because you can copy and paste a one line and then just over and over and over and just change the image name, which I kind of like. But um, but yeah, my, my, my choice is my, my top choice for doing stuff like that would by far and away be Caden Live. My second choice would be Libra Impress. Okay, great. Uh, my second question, I think you've covered it before, but I can't remember what episode. Uh, what would be your, your suggestion for the, uh, a good uh, over-the-air antenna for this area? Oh, yeah, okay. For uh, TV. Yeah, the, um, the one that, that we have been recommending is a, it's an antenna off of Amazon. It's called the Amplified HD Digital Antenna. Uh, it's it's a specific one, and and really, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the the way that we landed on this is it has like thirty thousand, yeah, here it is, thirty one thousand reviews, uh, five star reviews from from Amazon. So this is the this is just the antenna that that people are buying, and and we've had had a number of people in Grand Forks that have purchased them, and they work very well. So I will uh, I will have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com with a link to that uh, to that antenna. 
Awesome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the call. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Our third email comes in from Ben. Ben writes in and says, hey, Noah, on episode 220, you had a question from someone who had severe nerve damage on one hand, creating issues for typing. You offered an interesting solution. Another one that I thought of was using a one-handed keyboard. So this is in reference to last week. Brendan wrote in, by the way, hi, Brendan's mom, wrote in and asked about using a one-handed uh, a one-handed use of Linux. And I did the best I could to step through um, what I, as a two-handed user of Linux, uh, could do for a solution using a trackball and a software called Onboard Keyboard. But I've said in that episode, hey, somebody in the community is going to be in touch because there's always somebody that knows more than me. And so that person in this week is Ben. So Ben says, have you checked out a one-handed keyboard? I've been experimenting for a couple of years with the Twiddler keyboard, and it's nice being fully configurable and able to physically connect it to a device via Bluetooth. I use it on desktop Linux and Lineage and Android. I love trackballs, by the way. One-handed physical keyboards works well in combination with a trackball, too. Best. Ben. So I took a look at this. This thing is unbelievable. It is so cool. So essentially, it is a one-handed keyboard, as you might expect. And what they've done is put, it actually includes a mouse itself. It has a little joystick, I guess, on it is the best way I can describe it. And what it allows you to do is uh, hold the keyboard in your hand. And then the, the way that the keys are laid out, it allows you to go either up or down to, um, to, to, to choose one of the letters or one of the numbers. And then on the opposite side of what looks like a remote control, there's, well, there's three little buttons at the top. And then on the opposite side of what looks like a remote control is where the little joystick uh, thing is as well as shift control alt and numlock and so your eighth the thing that impressed me it'd be one thing if i could just enter qwerty stuff i just a through z zero through nine that would be enough uh if that's all i got out of a uh, out of a little uh handheld remote i would think that would be enough um but they go a step further and allow you to do things like key combinations which makes this a, a real product that somebody could use with one hand so i i don't have a i don't have a need um to have this, but they're, and they're back ordered right now. But I am going to purchase one of these, and I'm going to check it out. As I mentioned last week, I I uh, I really enjoy being able to spend time with my wife and hang out, and kind of have one eye on the on the nerd sphere. And so, um, having a one handed keyboard seems like a great way to do that. And so, uh, huge thanks to Ben uh, for writing in, and and hopefully that gets back to Brendan. Our fourth email comes in from Graham. Graham writes in and says, "Hello, I'm looking for a Bluetooth headset to use at work that works well." on Linux with stereo audio, uh, while at the same time being able to use a mic. I primarily use this for Zoom, but I don't want to have to switch headsets to listen to music. Good noise cancellation is a plus, and the ability to flick up the mic to mute would be greatly appreciated. Um, so I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know of any Bluetooth headsets that are amazing at uh that have really good sound for stereo and again somebody from the community is going to write in if if i were if i were if if i had to make a decision somebody had me or their credit card and said buy something today that that works with linux is bluetooth and has decent enough sound i'd probably go with steel series have used them before it does have the little flip up mic thing that mutes and all of that um i think they sound good enough if it were me and i woke up in your shoes I would purchase the Sony WH-1000 XM4s. They are by far the best 
wireless headphones money can buy. Full stop. The best wireless headphones money can buy. Now, they're a little expensive at 350 bucks. They do include a microphone for doing calls. Now, they're, not, they're primarily designed to be headphones. My thought goes something like this. If you have a dedicated mic and you have headphones on so your microphone is not coming out of your speaker and your speakers are not coming out of your out of your computer, excuse me, if your microphone and speakers aren't just on your laptop and you're sitting five feet away, that puts you ahead of 80% of people out there that are using Zoom. Add to that the fact that you're going to have crystal clear audio quality in your head because they are the best wireless headphones I've ever used. Uh, you add to that and the fact that even if you spend all of your time on Zoom, the, the participants on the other end of Zoom are going to hear you just fine because the microphone is right near your mouth. And you're going to hear them really well because it's a really good headset. And so, no, it doesn't have an extendable boom. And so there, it's not right in front of your mouth and all of the things that make for a good headset. But it does have uh, gestures. And so you have the opportunity to, like, so, for example, you hold up to, to your right ear and put your hand on it. It will pause the music. Um, so that you can listen to the noise around you, that kind of thing. Uh, or you can, there, there's other gestures that you can do things like mute the microphone. So, uh, Sony WH1000XM4s, uh, again, some of the best headphones I've ever used in my life. And they include a mic. They are Bluetooth. They work flawlessly with Linux. Our pick of the week this week is Loving Memory. You can learn more at github.com slash quarter slash loving memory. So this is a really awesome project. It's a guy who his mother unfortunately passed away. And in the midst of her passing away, he said to himself, I need to be able to communicate to all of our friends and family that this is where the funeral arrangements are. This is where you can send flowers and all of that. And he wanted the opportunity to control that data, not just put it up on whatever the funeral site is. What if they change hosting providers and then the memory of his mother is lost? Those kinds of things. So he wrote an open source piece of code, and it's a central place that people can go to find out about funeral arrangements. He's open sourced the code and hopes that it will help somebody else in a similar situation out. So his code is based off of GitHub pages, which is really fantastic because it means it doesn't require any extensive web expertise to get up and running. You simply have to uh, follow his instructions, which he has laid out in his GitLab page or his GitHub page. Excuse me. Another example of FOSS combining technology to fill a gap in a very easy and painless way. Ten years ago, if you wanted to do something like this, you'd have to call a server company and you'd have to sign an agreement to host a server, and then they give you IP space, and then you'd load it with an operating system, and then you would load it with a web server, and then you would pay a web guy or you would design it yourself, and then you would upload all of those files, and then if somebody else wanted to do that, they could retrace all of those steps, right? But we've gotten to a point now where web servers are about the most simple thing that you can set up. And so when you add to that the fact that GitHub has so they just include that as a feature. Hey, if you have a project and you need a page, you can do that right here on GitHub. So this guy is just tweaking that a little bit, using it in a slightly different way. And he has this amazing project and this amazing tool that other people can take advantage of. But it, they can take advantage of it largely because GitHub has that service available, because it's open source. And so you're able to access that infrastructure and change it in a way that fits your needs. And because this guy who wrote the software was willing to release the code. So again, the project Loving Memory, you can learn more at github.com slash codier 
slash loving memory. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week is not really a gadget, but it was so cool we just had to talk about it. It is cactus.chat. So cactus.chat is yet another way. Man, there's a theme here. Open source coming together to make things easy. There's another way that you can use Matrix. We've talked about Matrix from the standpoint of a chat client. We've talked about Matrix from uh, the standpoint of like a Twitter feed. This time, we're going to talk about Matrix from the standpoint of embedding comments on a web page. So Cactus allows you to easily embed comments on a web page, be it static or dynamic. They are, of course, privacy respecting, which means that your users have full control over who hosts their data. And in this case, we're referring to their data as the comments that they're posting on the site. Users can log in with any matrix server that they choose. It's, of course, highly compatible because everybody can read or post the comments in the browser or, this is the thing I think is cool, continue the conversation using any other matrix client. Of course, it's decentralized, so comment sections are accessible from any home server on the matrix network, and it's powered by open standards. So this is, again, an opportunity for us to take a open source tool that was built for one thing and move it over here to something else. Why I think this is particularly powerful or why this intrigues me is, is the following. We recently launched ParachuteLive.tv. It's very basic at this point, but what it allows us to do is prove a couple of concepts. The first is this. When we go out uh, for AltaSpeed Technologies to do streaming events, um, provide coverage for Southeast Linux Fest, provide coverage for Linux Fest Northwest, it doesn't really fit to have all that stuff in Ask No. I'm typically there, but it would be nice to be able to let other people use open source infrastructure. And so that was the goal behind ParachuteLive.tv. How can we make a Twitch-like experience but replace all of the components with open source? So for the video, you get a HTML5 video player that embeds a stream hosted by Scale Engine, our server company, which, by the way, is all running on an open source software. It's running on BSD because it's Allen, right? The chat is powered by Matrix, and it uh, it was written by Kapavik in the chat room, and uh, we hired him and said, hey, can you come on and build us a chat client based on Matrix, but that works perfectly well in the browser right along the side of the video chat? And so what this allows people to do is show up to watch. You can watch Ask Noah Show. It's streaming there right now. Go over to ParachuteLive.tv. The chat comes up on the side. And you're able to participate in and watch the show. Now, after the show, if you made a friend, if you decide you like it, if you decide that's for you, because the chat, by the way, I should mention, doesn't require you to register. Okay. And this is something that we had. This is what we, this is what we paid Kabavik to design is right now at the moment, there isn't a, the, 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 the process for doing guest authentication is somewhat broken from the standpoint that if, they enable it. It registers that person's username. And if they forget their, if they, if they close the browser session, they don't document their password and all of that. Um, then they're kind of host if, if they didn't set a recovery email. So we've gotten around that by creating a bunch of temp users. Um, but the, the idea here is that once you participate in a, in, a, in an event at parachutelive.tv, you are part of the matrix network. And then you can continue those conversations in your own freedom respecting way on your own time. If you, if you wish, or you can just come back and be anonymous and, and chat with us. We don't care. This cactus.chat takes it to, uh, it's the same concept applied in a slightly different way. This is the opportunity for us to post videos on a site and then embed cactus chat to allow people to participate in that discussion. Now, where the rubber hits the road for me is this. I show up here. I open the Geek Lab, which you can get to at geeklab.ninja. You can 
browse it in your web in in a, in a web browser. You can participate in a chat client. If somebody joins the chat because they just join us on parachutelive.tv, they're coming to the exact same place and have access and the ability to talk and converse and become connected with the community. If the video is posted afterwards and they stumble onto it and they post a comment and somebody replies to the comment, all of that communication, all of that connection, all of that community comes back to one decentralized open place, and that is the Matrix Network. If tomorrow Linux Delta goes away, there are other Matrix servers out there. If you run one, you are participating in making that ecosystem stronger. So it's not about any one brand. It's not about any one person. It's not about any one server. It's not about any one thing. Everybody has the opportunity to connect, and nobody has the opportunity to rip the rug out from other people. So it's an expensive, cumbersome way, or it might sound like it's an expensive, cumbersome way to get to the same end road that I would get to if we just posted our videos on YouTube and let the comments roll and streamed on Twitch. I mean, that's what everybody else is doing, right? This, to me, is a better way. Not only is it a better way, it's a way that anybody can replicate and anybody can do. And so when I see what people are doing at cactus.chat, I look at that and say to myself, I really like the fact that you're giving your users full control over who hosts their data and users can log into any matrix server and you can read and post comments in the browser or you can continue that conversation offline. Those are the things that I was trying to accomplish with our live stream system and you're doing it in comments. And so now, now you have essentially a, you, you have a Twitter clone, you have a comments clone, and you have a, a, a live stream web chat clone. And so, but all of those, if you signed up for Matrix one time, you can participate in all of those discussions. If you have your own Matrix server, you can still participate in all of those discussions. And if you don't want anyone to know who you are, you can still participate in all of those discussions. So all the way around, uh, I, I think this is very cool. You can learn more at cactus.chat. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, probably one, this is exciting, the Blackbird Secure Desktop, a fully open source modern Power 9 workstation without any proprietary code. Uh, everything in this machine is FOSS. Now, we've interviewed folks from Power 9 in the past. Uh, if you're not familiar with Power 9, it, 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 it it's essentially an alternative uh, um, processing architecture uh, for computers. And the idea here is to be more secure uh, and be open top to bottom. And so when you purchase a, in, uh, when you purchase a Dell or when you purchase a Lenovo, or to be honest with you, even when you purchase like System 76, System 76 does a lot to open source basically everything as far as they can. But at some point their hands are tied because Intel still makes their processors. And there are just little bits of, 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 uh, of code that exist all around. Um, and, and like I say, places like System76, they go a lot further. They open source the BIOS, they open source the keyboard lights, that kind of stuff. But this open sources everything. So the cheapest computer that you can get your hands on, a fully built computer, because you can buy the chip separately, motherboard separately, but the cheapest computer that you can get your hands on is the basic Blackbird bundle. Now, that's a four-core CPU. You can order it online for $1,700. And, of course, right now, as you might imagine, they're backordered. Now, no, why would I want a bla- Why would I want this instead of just an Intel x86 where I can go Ryzen? Or- there are a couple of things. Again, we'll start with the fact that it's completely open source top to bottom, but there are, there are a couple of other things that, that really stand out. First of all, 
if you're doing any sort of large rendering uh, or uh, large predictable computational workloads, things like the Unreal Engine, for example, are developed on Power9 infrastructure. And if you have a large security requirement and maybe you need to audit things from top to bottom and you need to absolutely understand what your hardware is doing, again, Power9 architecture is going to be something that you might look at. Now, a lot of people hear Power9, they go, what? Power? Yes, it is. The power-based processors were popular in 1994 until about 2006 when Apple switched from PowerPC over to the Intel x86 ISA. Um, some other notable examples of power architecture would be the GameCube, the Nintendo Wii, the Xbox 360, the PlayStation 3. They all used PowerPC-based processors. Now, IBM has done developing using processors on the Power ISA for a long time. IBM released the first processor uh, in 1990. That was the Power One. And that was originally for servers and micro or, or super supercomputers, excuse me. They've steadily kept developing the line of processors for decades. And now they're about to roll out Power 10, which should be available uh, hopefully later later this year. The, 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 the company um, uh, Raptor, Raptor Computing Systems is their name. Uh, Raptor Computing Systems is the company that sells main boards, Power 9 processors, or fully assembled power workstations, which is where you get uh, the Blackbird Secure Desktop. Uh, you can purchase one right from the site, and they have everything uh, just laid out for you, just like you'd be purchasing one for Dell. Um, one of the interesting things about not just the Blackbird, but some of their other machines, they contain a BMC. If you're not familiar with a BMC, a BMC is essentially a firmware stack that powers on first. The second you plug the the, the power supply uh, corded, the second it has AC power, the, BM, the, the uh, BMC's interface job is to start up and, and start paying attention to what's going on. And then from there, you can start to control the machine. So I first, one of the, one of the most prolific examples of BMCs is on servers at, 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 uh, at large scale. So Facebook and, and, and Google, all of these places, they have servers available. Um, they're running a BMC on it. Lately, the one of the more popular BMCs is OpenBMC. OpenBMC, as you might imagine, is an open source firmware stack uh, for a BMC controller, and the BMC allows you to do all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. You can kind of think of it um, almost like a almost like a UEFI interface. Um, just a very basic level. There's power to the computer. Now what? How do we boot? Um, the BMC outputs to both the VGA and a serial port. Uh, most people use the VGA port. Once the BMC has fully booted, then it can start the Linux installation, and you may end up at a Petaboot menu where you can select your preferred boot device. So Petaboot is an operating system bootloader based off of KeyExec, and so it can load an operating system image that supports the Linux KeyExec reboot mechanism like Linux and FreeSB, uh, FreeBSD. Excuse me. Petaboot can load images from any device and be mounted in Linux, and it can also load images from the network using HTTP, HTTPS, NFS, SFTP, and TFTP. So this is, it's essentially a next-level computer is really what it is, and, it, and it's its very specific pur purpose-built. You $1,700, nobody is buying this machine, well, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people are buying this machine for fun. Most people, if you're purchasing this machine, it's because you have some sort of workload that can benefit from the load or from a Power9 architecture, or 
uh, because you need the security enhancements. Now, we have a one of the features of Matrix is it allows us to host a Jitsi room. And with us in the Jitsi room is uh, Conan Kudo. If I can put you on the spot for a second, um, you have a lot of in well, you have a lot of in-depth knowledge about, about a lot of things, but you have a lot of in-depth knowledge on Power Nine. Who is this machine made for? Who is excited about this? So I would say that there's two key um, camps of people who'd be super excited about this. The first would obviously be the camp that is the enthusiast about open architectures and open platforms who don't really want to sacrifice performance for openness. In many respects, the power architecture platform is more powerful, pun intended, uh, than pretty much everything else on the market. Maybe in a few years, ARM, uh, the 64-bit ARM architectures will be at the same level. But right now, power's got nothing uh, comparable other than maybe uh, S390X or otherwise known as IBM Z. Um, on the other hand, uh, you have folks who are working in high security environments where they need, uh, because of the sensitivity of the workloads, like what their context they're being used in, what the types of data that they're processing, they wind up being, uh, it winds up being extremely important that they understand everything that's happening on the system all the way down to the silicon. Uh, and it actually, in, in some respects, this is part of the reason why there are, uh, there are large cloud providers that actually, uh, large cloud-based infrastructure systems, not necessarily cloud providers, though IBM Cloud does offer power-based cloud solutions, um, that there are very specialized companies workloads that they actually wind up using power for. And for example, um, I, I forget exactly where where exactly I saw it. And if I find it, I'll, I'll shoot you a link or whatever. But Google is uh, somewhat famous for using power systems for a lot of heavy workloads because they can optimize the stack top to bottom. They understand the architecture very well. They understand the microarchitecture, all the stuff that makes up the system. And they can optimize heavily for it and get really good performance uh, without compromising much on anything else. You know, and having talked to, having talked to Google about that, the other side of that is they – and I don't think they're very vocal about this. But the other side of that is they very much appreciate the fact that it is a hedge, a negotiating hedge against Intel. Um, they have something else to go to now. And so that makes their negotiations with Intel all the more competitive. Yeah, absolutely. That is certainly that is certainly a part of it. I didn't want to particularly speak to the because I mostly talked to the technical folks at Google, not really the the other folks. But yeah, power is is could obviously be used as a hedge in that way. But even even ignoring the hedge part, like it, there are workloads, many workloads where it winds up being just better. Um, I was at Red Hat Summit a couple of years back, uh, where I sat with one of the Open Power guys, and we played a game of Zonatic on. Uh, on a on a power nine system and he told me towards the end that it was actually emulating x86 the whole time i wasn't running it native and it was faster than anything i'd ever seen before and this is just the kind of capability that the power architecture offers even with emulation even running non-native it wound up being faster than pretty much any high-end x86 cpu i'd ever seen at that time uh but from both intel and amd and you that is that is remarkable it also has much better 
um, symmetric multiprocessing algorithms and capabilities. Um, its version of hyperthreading lets it do twice as much on a single core. There's a lot to like there um, in terms of what's going on in the Power family and the Open Power Foundation and all the work that they've been doing there. And it's only going to get better with Power 10, where they're going to move to um, much more modern uh, CPU architecture designs, moving to manufacturing processes that are commonly uh, used with modern x86 CPUs and GPUs. And that'll bring its performance characteristic, that'll keep its performance characteristics high while bringing the power consumption, like the electrical consumption, performance per watt, to levels very similar to what we see uh, with x86 today. Like, so you'll, you may wind up having much better performance at, you know, the half the power level that it takes to consume on, on an x86 chip to, re, to reach the same workload performance, which is amazing. Very much so. Very much so. Well, I'm excited to continue to watch this. And I, the thing that, you know, it, it's one thing for Power9 to exist. It's one thing for Google and Facebook to use them. And, and I remember a few years ago when, when I would walk by their booths and they would talk about how they were leveraging Power9 or how they were leveraging even OpenBMC. That was a thing for a while too. Um, it, we, 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 um, talked to the guys, the Open Compute Project guys are, are big OpenBMC guys. And so I, I see that stuff and I'm like, that's great. If I ever open a data center, or I ever have 10,000 servers to manage, I'll certainly look into that. Next time I negotiate with Intel over a million processors, I'll make sure to, uh, to, to, to make sure to research Power9. So to a certain extent, it was so obfuscated from anything that I could wrap my brain around. When you start looking into what Raptor is doing and having these machines, not just because, you know, Red Hat Summit's a great place, but, um, they, they bring the, the Power9 guys go to, or Power PC guys go to, Various conferences and have these demo units set up. JJ4884 in the chat room asked, he said, what distros are compatible? That was the first thing I asked him is, so great. I spend $1,700 on this, you know, weird, esoteric, alternative processing architecture. What can I run on it? And the answer was basically anything you want. Um, and Fedora is particularly well suited to that. Probably I would have said, well, I, you're on Fedora, so I guess you, you could, you could tell me, is it because that there are so many people in the scientific community that are already leveraging Fedora? So, and are using it for security reasons. So when you build a hardware platform for that, it's sort of a natural fit. Also, by the way, IBM owns Red Hat. So Fedora being a great, uh, great fit for, uh, for power systems predates IBM acquiring Red Hat. That it's, it's actually been that way for a long time. Uh, when IBM was bootstrapping Linux on on power systems or power PC systems uh, for their server infrastructure for the IBM P series servers, they first they approached SUSE and Red Hat and they did it on those platforms together. So because of that, IBM's been contributing to the Fedora project for I want to say seven ish years now, and they've been doing a good job of helping make it be a first-class uh, platform. And even they offer members of the Fedora community access to power-based virtual machines so they can debug, test, and develop uh, packages to in Fedora to run on power systems. So it makes, it makes for a stellar experience for developing and maintaining software and offering it to people on the power platform. Now, in addition to Fedora, a great other alternative is OpenSUSE. OpenSUSE has first class support for power all the way from beginning to end they autom they do automated testing they validate everything across the board they've got great um multi boot support and all that sort of stuff if 
on Fedora and OpenSUSE, if you are using Power, you will not be able to really tell the difference between it and x86 other than, you know, some x86 specific things won't be available like Syslinux and whatnot. You won't miss it. And you will see that things just happen faster and better. Like it's going to work out pretty well. It's going to be fairly transparent to you. Um, but yeah, by far, I would say the best supported platforms uh, for our Fedora and OpenSUSE. And I think that largely comes from the, from IBM supporting those communities directly, but also because Red Hat Enterprise Linux and SUSE Linux Enterprise go out of their way to make power a first class platform for their enterprise Linux distributions. And those, and that's why you will see, um, that it, I think it's like maybe a 50 50 split or a 60 40 split. I forget which way in favor between Red Hat and SUSE. For the dom for most workloads on power. So I, one small correction I want to make: the basic Blackbird bundle with the four core CPU for seventeen hundred bucks. That doesn't. That's not the full workstation. The full workstation. Uh, I'm, I'm specking it out on their site. Is uh, is is thirty three hundred dollars. Um, so uh, again, it, you really have to have a budget for this, or really have to have a reason to purchase something like this. Let me ask you this, Neil: Is it possible? You said it emulated. Um, x86 very well. Can people expect, or do you think that people could expect it to emulate all operating system, all x86 operating systems that well? So there's no downside to purchasing PowerPC. Um, so I'm not, I, I can't specifically comment on every single workload or whatnot. Sure. I played video games on it and right. I didn't notice it. it was actually faster than my than my se- somewhat powerful desktop computer. Uh, so there, there's that if you want that as a benchmark. Um, but I would expect that most people who are virtualizing, let's say Windows or, or, um, or an x86 Linux platform, um, on, on power, uh, like Fedora on power on a, on a Blackbird will probably not notice much of a difference from it running natively on an x86 system. Uh, because even with the, in normal circumstances, x86 on an x86 when you're doing emulated, note, not the same as virtualized, emulated, it's roughly, you know, 60 to 70% of the performance of native virtualization. Uh, uh, and native virtualization is around 95 to 97% of native bare metal performance. And so when you take it to power systems, when you can do virtualization, when you can do emulation that approaches virtualization in terms of uh, the performance differential, that's amazing. That's really good. And so in a lot of cases, I don't think people will miss much from having, you know, to use Quemu uh, with emulation uh, to emulate an x86 platform on, on power. Colonel Panic in the chat room uh, says Debian is also supported on Power 9. Now, one of the things, and 2-Bit points this out, Pine64, we covered this a few weeks ago, is working on a RISC-V SBC. And um, the, the pencil soldering iron uses a, a, a RISC-V architecture. I think that, and I'd be curious on, on your thoughts or anybody else inside of the, the Jitsi room, I think that going forward, alternative architectures are going to be something that are more prolific and we pay more attention to, particularly in light of ARM getting acquired by NVIDIA. You have so many of these massive companies that have their their thumb over 
the over the hardware platforms which everybody else builds stuff around power is one of those that because it's open source top to bottom because anybody can do that um there is tremendous value there there's tremendous flexibility there again yeah. if, uh, no i i appreciate that i i appreciate your help and I, I appreciate you jumping in because i'm sorry to put you on the spot like that but you know you again you have some extensive knowledge there and and uh and uh, and and you've ha- probably had more hands-on experience than I've had um, with it. Although, uh, if if anybody has a spare thirty-seven hundred dollars, you send it my way. I'd be happy to put some hands-on experience time in. Again, eight fifty-five four fifty. Say again. Sorry. No, you're good. I was going to say maybe you can just you know maybe ask the Open Power folks to see if they could uh, lend you something to 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 review because I would be super interested on your take on running you know. Of Fedora or OpenSUSE on an on an open power system and comparing it to your experience running it on x86 to see how it how it jives for you. I'll check it out and I'll be sure not to drop it when they send it to me. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Plasma Mobile has the update for February. So I want to I want to reframe just a little bit. I have been playing with Plasma Mobile on the Pine Phone. Have it here in the studio with me actually. And I the, the the thing that is so amazing to me is that we are at a point now where so many different people are making operating systems for the mobile phone, and we finally have a hardware platform to actually load them on, a hardware platform that's designed for them to be loaded on. One of the things that turned me off very early on, I was one of those people that would, uh, would, would, would uh, load a custom ROM onto my phone. Didn't want to use stock Android. Didn't think I should use stock Android. Still believe that I won't. I shouldn't have to use a device that I don't have administrative access to. However, I bricked my. I think it was my S3, Samsung S3, trying to load something onto it. And I remember a very clear point in my head, thinking I spend too much money on these phones to take chances, and then I don't have a working phone. Add to that the fact that the software that's loaded on there usually isn't really fully baked, and so there's there's a couple of rough edges. And so that's, that really kept me, uh, from really digging in. The Pine Phone has removed all of that because when Plasma Mobile announces an update on March 1st, I wake up, I see the announcement, I go grab my Pine Phone, I go grab Jump Drive, I stuck, stick Jump Drive, which if you haven't used, you should use Jump Drive if you have a Pine Phone. Jump Drive loaded onto an SD card, I stick it in the phone, I boot the phone up, I plug the phone into my laptop, I download the latest image, I open it with Disk Manager, and I say right to the phone, and then I wait a little bit. And it writes that image to the EMMC controller, and then I reboot the, I take the jump drive out, and I restart the phone, and now I have the latest version of Plasma Mobile, and or any other operating mobile operating system I want to try. That's where we're starting from, and that's who this today. I think that's the user group that fits best. Somebody who says to themselves, "Someday I don't want to live on Android or iOS forever," and I'm out there hunting. And today, there's nothing that is going to replace it for me as a daily driver. However, comma. I'm very interested in finding out what will be ready to replace this down the road. And I have to tell you, Manjaro Arm with KDE Mobile, the progress that they are making, the progress that they've made in just a couple of months is fantastic. So to start, when you load uh, when you load Manjaro Arm with Plasma Mobile, now you're now you're set up with the welcome screen that, that lets you set up the phone. Um, I have tried so many of these mobile operating systems. I've tried Mobi and Postmarket OS. Uh, Ubi ports. I, I start to forget which ones had it, and which ones didn't. But so, but the the welcome screen 
is awesome because not only does it let you set a custom password, which a lot of them don't, a lot of them just have one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, it also paves the groundwork down the road for doing things like encryption. When you have the ability to start the ROM up in a, Hey, this is a new user and what things are we going to set up? Those are the kind of, those are the, that's the kind of groundwork you're going to need for full disk encryption. Something that I would consider a mandatory minimum before I would use it, uh, for production. They've modified the home screen so that the drawer behaves solely as an application list. They've laid the groundwork for horizontal pages and widgets and applications, as well as the possibility of developing custom launchers in the future. Their demo video, as well as what I've been able to kind of play with, you can drag uh, out of the app drawer and, and lay the icons out. Uh, also, updates to the Plasma dialer, which include one bug fix and two new features. First off, PowerDevil no longer suspends calls, so... That was that had been an issue for a while. Now, I have a SIM card in my phone uh, just so I could see if it works and how it works and stuff like that. I've not seriously used it. I make a call every once in a while. The other person answers. I confirm that I'm able to make and receive calls. I'm happy about that. And then that's really as far as I've gone with testing it. Um, the two new features are it is now possible to send DTMF tones and send USSD requests. DTMF tones can be sent during a call and can be used to navigate menus of certain automated calling systems. USSD requests, also called quick codes, can be used to request current prepaid balance and the mobile operator, as well as other data. And both features were tested and work on the Pine phone. So these are all little things. At you know, at the onset, you say to yourself. If we can make and receive calls, that gets most people, right? But then somebody goes to dial a special feature code so that they can check their balance with their prepaid SIM card and it doesn't work. That breaks for that particular user. And so these are kind of the small little rough edges that why I say today, I don't, I still don't believe that you can go buy a, well, I shouldn't say can't, but you shouldn't go buy a Pine phone and expect it to replace your Galaxy S20 or your iPhone 12, right? It's, they're just, totally different tools for totally different jobs with totally different expectations. But if your expectation is that you want to watch a mobile op or actually really a collection of mobile operating systems being developed from the ground up and you want to participate in that process, then there's never been an easier or cheaper way to do that because the Pine phone is available for 150 bucks. Um, I think they're going to have another run coming up here shortly. Uh, I've never, it's easier to load operating systems onto the Pine phone than it is to install Linux distros on your laptop. That's the truth. There is more menus and more clicking and more thinking involved when I load an operating system onto my laptop than there is when I load an operating system onto my Pine phone. Uh, and 85% of that is jump drive because it makes it literally the EMMC controller literally show up as a flash storage on, on my laptop. Um, but why that is where KDE is skating towards and where Plasma Mobile is skating towards, I can completely understand why the Pine Phone people look over and say, if we're going to pick one to go with, that's the operating system we're going to ship by default. We'll make it super easy for you to load whatever you want. That's the operating sh system we're shipping to by default because it looks good. Discover works. The, the application... Um, the App Store works great, which is not the case on all of the other mobile operating systems. You get a full terminal. It comes preloaded with many of the applications that you need, things like Telegram, things like NeoChat. I think NeoChat got an update, too. I hadn't looked at it. NeoChat had a bug the last time where it wouldn't allow you to stay logged in. Every time I would close NeoChat, I had to re-log in the next time I opened it. So as an enthusiast's device, as somebody who is looking to experiment and play with technology or somebody who wants to share technology with their family or their kids, there is no better tool. 
Uh, and as I, the closer that we get to a mobile operating system actually becoming a daily driver replacement for something like Android or iOS, the happier I get. And someday I think we're going to get there. Don't think I'm going to be running it on the Pine Phone, but the Pine Phone is definitely the place to start. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. The show airs every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. You can uh, show up live, ask your questions, or email them live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take them next week. Have a good week. We'll see you next Tuesday.